Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and then to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a bright but cool autumn morning here in the capital is Adam Regan. Adam is the director of Left Foot Venues Limited. Adam, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Morning, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. It's a real pleasure, Adam, welcoming you onto the show with us. Um, Normally at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves at Left Foot, to what extent has it changed things? Well, we, um, we actually shut down about three days before uh, pubs and venues were asked to shut down. So March the 16th or was our last day. Um, and we haven't been able to open since. Um, just to give you a bit of background, our main uh, operation is uh, a venue which is an old pub called the Hare and Hands in a suburb of Birmingham called King's Heath. Mm. We've got a 250 cap and a 150 cap venue here, but we also pro- uh, program and promote a lot of live shows and club shows around Birmingham at venues up to 3,000 caps. So as you can imagine, there hasn't been any opportunity for us to do any of these things. So we had to kind of go into lockdown and then just you know keep our fingers crossed, hoping there was going to be some help. And thinking about um, sort of how long this sort of period of stasis could go on for, um, how long are you expecting it to be like this? Because a a vaccine, if one does come along, fingers crossed that it does, isn't necessarily going to work as a magic bullet, even when it's safe to sort of go out into venues again. It could take some time for consumer confidence to return just because of the prolonged anxiety caused by all of this. Yeah, I agree. I uh, I think everybody's looking towards spring, so sort of the end of March. 21. Uh, but there's no guarantee that things are going to be back to normal by then. I mean, we've got a full program of events that's been rescheduled from um, this spring to winter, autumn, which has now been rescheduled to sort of March onwards, but they're starting now to be rescheduled to September, October, November 2021. So it's anybody's guess, really. Uh, as you said, a vaccine won't necessarily resolve all the problems. I think customer confidence is going to be a big one to get over. Um, and unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people that do leave the industry from musicians through to technical staff, production staff. So we could see a, a really bad impact on the industry for, for a few years to come, I think. Yeah, that is going to be a problem, isn't it? Uh, people having to upskill and go into different sectors. While, of course, um, there'll be a lot of industries, such as the construction sector, for example, that could be rubbing their hands and thinking this is an opportunity for us to address a long-standing skills shortage here, perhaps. It is going to come at the detriment to the creative industries, isn't it? And that's something which does need to be looked at by leaders going forward to try and sort of alleviate these problems that are going to come. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people that I know that are sound engineers, production staff, that are driving, you know, vans for delivery companies, working in supermarkets because they know that they're not going to be back in their job for, for a long, long time and have had to earn money. You know, there's been some help, obviously, but there's obviously not going to be 
help for everybody. And uh, yeah, people have looked at alternative ways of earning money. So that drain of skills, I mean, being a sound engineer is a very skilled job um, and you can't just train for it in a few months. You know, people mm-hmm. have trained for years, they've had lots of experience and that goes for any kind of event staff as well. You know, it's we are going to see a lot of people uh, moving into different industries, you know, like you said, construction, driving, teaching, all sorts of stuff. So it's going to be it's going to be a slow curve back to normality that I, I predict could be anything up to five years. And just thinking about the impact that all of this is having on sort of mental health and well-being, particularly at left foot as well, um, how has it been sort of managing that, both in terms of your own sort of mental well-being and also that of the people that you work with? Because leaders have really had to step up and try and just keep people motivated and keep people as reassured as possible during this time. And that can be very mentally taxing with all the uncertainty in place. Absolutely. I mean, I think you have to start with yourself and then try and, you know, influence people as much as you can in terms of exercising, eating well, sleeping well, not falling into bad habits. I think the start of lockdown was very sunny and a lot of people were quite enjoying that time to have a few beers in the garden, but that obviously isn't a long-term solution. So, I mean, for myself, I exercise a lot. I do a lot of boxing training. I meditate. I just start doing yoga. Uh, And various members of the team, have their own ways of doing stuff, whether that be running, yoga, playing football, whatever. I think it's really, really important to stay mentally and physically healthy during this because, let's face it, it's probably the biggest test any of us have faced in our lifetime. So, yeah, definitely keen to sort of encourage people to stay physically and mentally fit during this. Yes, it, it is hugely important, of course, not just in alleviating the uh, the risks of um, complications of the virus if you do happen to be unlucky enough to contract it, but also just keeping in that good sort of mental state as well. Um, what we are looking to do on the programme as well is move away from the doom and gloom of what has been a dark cloud over all of us this year and try and find some silver lining in that. Of course, with what it's doing to the creative industry, it's very difficult to try and find some positives. But is there anything maybe, Adam, that you in your leadership role have learned from this crisis management experience that you will take forward and use to maybe galvanize yourself in the business? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously having so much time without doing what we are used to doing gives us the opportunity to to plan for the future, to, to streamline the business, to look at ways we can grow the business and develop the creative side of it. We're looking to work with uh, musicians during this time now to do some uh, live video and and recordings at the venue where they can come in and utilize the space. Um, we're planning for the future, really. I mean, whether that future is from March or whether that future is from further down the road, who knows. But we were lucky enough to receive some of the um, Cultural Recovery Fund uh, about a week ago, which gives us a little bit of breathing space. So we can plan for the future with some new and interesting ways of doing business um, and then just to develop what we already do pretty well and are successful at doing so yeah that time sometimes although it's worrying financially it can give you a bit of headspace to to you know to reassess what you do and to improve what you do so there's there's definitely some positives from having this amount of time without trading it just goes to show doesn't it that um so much about leadership as well it's not just about adapting and innovating but it's about sort of learning as well continuous development and improvement and so much of it is trial and error as well because so many business leaders that i've particularly interviewed on the program over the last few months have said that what it's been like is their first days back in business starting over going back down to basics trying to find different income streams trying new things and there's a lot to be said for that isn't there 
Definitely, definitely. I, I think the way we operate uh, normally pre-COVID is that we're so busy for two, you know, two main touring periods of the year. You don't have time to stop and think and and, and sort of evaluate what you do. Um, so it, this has been useful in that, you know, looking at each of our roles, myself as the director, my two business partners, uh, and other key staff, and trying to sort of see ways we can work better and, and, and smarter and and that's that's really beneficial, and that's something that you don't really get the chance to do often enough in small independent businesses. So, yeah, we're we're pleased with with some of the outcomes so far, and we obviously got a lot of things to be excited about once we do get through this. But it's just making sure that we get through it in some kind of fit state to to carry the company on. And thinking about sort of getting through the next few months in that fit state, if we sort of fast forward, say, maybe 12 months, I mean, I know we don't have a crystal ball to hand, but in an ideal world, where is it that you'd like the business to be by then? And what are you hoping to have achieved? Well, I'd very much like the the, the key part of our business, which is the, the venue itself to be open and operating on some level, whether that's 50% or, or slightly less capacity, at least we could we could plan and book things in and, and, and start, you know, getting some staff back in the business. Um, I, I don't know how it will look in terms of the bigger gigs, the touring shows, the stuff that we do up to sort of 3000 cap, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of doubt about whether festival season will be back in 2021. You know, there's some big key operators like Glastonbury that are kind of suggesting that they want to push ahead, but nobody really knows. And I think, um, if we can get back to some kind of normality by the end of 2021, that will be a result for me, as far as I'm concerned, with the you know with the with what we do in terms of the, the touring shows. So, you know, fingers crossed for that. But let's see how it all pans out. That, that's all we can really do at the moment. Look at it um, with some optimism and with a brave face, and just try and uh, hope for the uh, the best. And uh, we do need a little bit of positivity and a little bit of morale boosting during this time because it can be get quite um, a lot um, with all of the uh, the negativity that is out there and the doom and gloom outlook. And I do hope that over the course of the year, uh, the next few months, Adam, that there will start to be some positive news to share, and we'll start to sort of emerge from the rut, as it were. And I think just given how there are still many variables in how this could pan out. It would be wonderful to actually catch up and have you back on the programme when the picture does start to become clearer, just to sort of reassess how things have changed. Yeah, sure, that would be great. I mean, as I said, you know, we're remaining positive. We're working hard for the future. And I think with this funding now, we feel we've got a little bit of breathing space. So, yeah, I'd like to think that this time next year, we could maybe talk again and be looking at a more positive route out of this uh, difficult time. Let's certainly hope so, Adam. I've actually thoroughly enjoyed having you on the uh, the programme today because it's been really insightful just understanding what's been going on within the industry and just how affected it is. Um, so let's keep our fingers crossed that we'll be out of the rut, as I say, for um, hope- hopefully very quickly. And um, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get an opportunity to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on in the world too because um, we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet, that's for certain, and we've just got to put on a brave face, keep positive and try and get through it. Thank you. Yes, thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. It's good to talk.
It is Adam as well. Um, it's fantastic. And it's all about what we're trying to do here as well, getting the authentic voices of all corners of British industry out there into the national sphere so that people can listen from each other and learn about what's really going on. Um, I'd also like to extend that last message there to every single one of the listeners that are tuning into today's podcast as well. Please do take care of yourselves, stay well and be considerate of others because it makes such a key difference in saving lives during this period. Um, for me today, it was a pleasure to welcome Adam Regan, Director of left foot venues limited in birmingham onto today's program um next up on the show today we'll be joined by england's 1966 fifa world cup hat-trick hero sir jeff Hurst. now sir jeff did score over 200 professional goals during his illustrious career but he remains most well known of course for that famous treble in england's 4-2 triumph over west germany back at the old wembley stadium 54 long years ago which saw the england team under sir alf ramsey lift the jules Rimet trophy which to date remains our only world title um, so Jeff will be coming on to the programme to not just talk about that famous day in 1966, which still makes him to this day the only man to have scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final, but he'll also be talking about the importance of robust leadership throughout his career and leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who have been doing all they can during this most trying time that we're living through. That will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer, and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter, and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want up wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, 
I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um I've off, I, said, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly. I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about. Uh, but certainly, what I was going to do, which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same 
union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. 
And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career completely understand exactly where you're coming from I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February um, Sir Jeff I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time I read somewhere that during your teenage years you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that as the saying goes yeah that's absolutely true when in, in those uh, medieval days you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play you um, in our road in Greenways it was called in Chelmsford we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it it's a cul-de-sac it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom so there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway A because it was a, a cul-de-sac and B because there weren't as many cars no there as many cars in those days so uh, we played acro- across the st- across the road um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back the goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted that was the goal and so it's three of us play football but amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those, those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true.
And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, tell them to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about but between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season 
around, I think, September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, uh, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd he have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised I think it, and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see myself. I was, I was a very disciplined, 
the person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time for the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on the goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was, uh, wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the, 
that kind of uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend, and, and I always jokingly say you. You only start being called a legend when you're over seventy, and I think the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me. When I was in business, as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up, so I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in in a sentence is really. I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out, and I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be. They wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person. Didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.